Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Let me welcome to the show, and I mispronounced her name, so I'm going to get it correct. The author of Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. Let me welcome Majora Carter. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Karen. Nice thank to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Listen, um, <laughs> I grew up in a neighborhood. I was, I was sharing this with Kevin Cruz yesterday. My dad bought the house. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was four years old. We were so excited. Mm. Uh, we moved into a house that was a mixed-race neighborhood. Mm. Uh, by the time I was five, <laughs> there was only one white person left on the block, Miss Bucky on the corner. Wow. And those people were disgruntled, but haha, jokes on them because our neighborhood was bucolic white picket fence. Mm. The most, it was the most amazing neighborhood to grow up in every wow. summer, hot peas and butter, kickball in the middle of the street. We would yeah. shut down the street, fish fries, the neighborhood, the block association. We had a block association. Wow. It was my childhood, Jack's, uh, Uno yeah. when it rained, Monopoly and Clue in, in, in everybody's house. We would be yeah. in maybe in Adrian's backyard to play Mother May I, and then we'd be in the Castro's backyard. I mean, it was, yeah. it was, it was community. The whole area. Absolutely. So what was the name of the neighborhood? It was, it was the presidential section of East orange. Those mm-hmm. of you, you know, cause at each street, I lived on Lafayette and it was Grant Sherman, oh. you know, Madison Monroe, Roosevelt, you know, uh-huh. Arlington was at the top, you know, it was the presidential section of East orange. And I just, it was all black growing up. Mm-hmm. Everybody was black. Everybody, daddy was in the house, you know, it was like, so when when I heard all of these statistics, grow, you know, going to high school or college, it was like, mm, I didn't come with an inferiority complex because I didn't see any of that. Good so, for you. Uh, awesome. Yes. So what's your what's your story that led you to reclaiming your community? Well, the, I think we should put it this way, because I think one of the so that was an amazing you know, description of, of your childhood. But I think when a lot of people think about the community, especially black folks, you know, that we were born and raised in, you know, in particular inner cities, you know, the big G word comes up, which is gentrification. And, and that generally means outsiders coming in to change a community to suit their interests and ideas. And what reclaiming involves is, is actually reclaim is first of all, acknowledging that there was already talent and amazing folks there to begin with. And we're using that talent to improve the quality of life for our own community. And in particular, you know, our own economic future. So, you know, I'm from a community, I'm from the South Bronx in New York city. And, you know, and we were literally like the, the poster child for urban blight, still are, um, to be honest. And, uh, but when I was coming up, it was the, you know, it was the 70s. And there were, you know, there was the financial disinvestment, literally burning buildings. It was the era of the burning Bronx. And, you know, like a lot of kids from communities like that, we were led to believe that if you want to be somebody, you grow up and you get out of those neighborhoods, period. You measure success by how far you get away. And so the reclaiming, you know, of, of the title of my book, Reclaiming a Community, You Don't Have to Move Out of Your Neighborhood, to live in a better one refers to our approach to community development, which is a talent retention strategy, acknowledging that there was already talent and all sorts of value in those communities before they change. And um, and it's there to support us as long as we're willing and able to be a part of that transformation. 
always wondered, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about Tulsa, Oklahoma after Watchmen uh-huh. and then, you know, quite recently. And, uh, you know, I have Demario Solomon Simmons on quite frequently. And we talk about what happened uh, in 1921 to Tulsa and, and then yeah. what happened to Rosewood. Because John mm-hmm. Singleton did that movie starring Ving Rhames and Esther Roll and, and Don, Don Cheadle. But there were mm-hmm. 19 thriving communities. North Carolina had yeah. probably one of the wealthiest uh, bunch of mm-hmm. neighborhoods. Mississippi's Mount yeah. Bayou, amazing. Yeah. They ran a highway through there to destroy it. Yeah. We've, we understand how to build community. We understand Absolutely. how to make neighborhoods safe and viable. We, we right. know what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. these neighborhoods that we live in that are blighted, it's not because of the lack of understanding how to build great communities. So Absolutely. how do, how does that become the, the predominant narrative as opposed to, you know, every place we go, it ends up becoming a ghetto. Right. Well, the, the long answer is, you know, it's, it's the legacy of white supremacy and redlining, you know, and, uh, you know, financial disinvestment that literally created like that wealth gap that we're experiencing. Um, but the other piece is that we've been led to believe that there's no value in our community while we're there. You know, and I think between the nonprofit industrial complex in particular, um, you know, it's like there's this idea that growing up and getting out of a place like that, like that's the Cinderella story that many people love. Like, you know, it's like, oh, they grew up in a hard scrabble community and then they're gonna grow up and be somebody. And it's like, why aren't we being somebody in our own community considering the examples that you just gave? I mean, the fact that they're, you know, back before when there was like legal, you know, um, segregation, there was economic diversity, you know, in those communities, you know, so it wasn't uncommon for the daughter of a black doctor, you know, to meet you know, the daughter, you know, of a, of a black janitor. And you realize, but there was an understanding that we could do all sorts of different things, but now I believe that there's really only two kinds of development, you know, and, what's, and it's like an unintended consequence of integration was that those that could afford to move did, because there was always this kind of feeling that, you know, especially because the layers and layers of poverty and, and it's and how it's been criminalized, you know, in this country, it's like even black folks will like disassociate themselves from those that are considered, you know, in that status. And so, but what we find now is that there's only two kinds of real estate development and, and what we call low status communities. And those are not, they'd be that a people, there's something wrong with people. It's more like inequality is assumed in some communities by both the people that are, that live there. Um, and also the folks that, you know, work to fix it. And so, and you see it in terms of the type of economic developments are there. It's like, you see lots of super, very highly subsidized affordable housing. There's low educational attainment, higher rates of people being involved in the justice system. You'll see more liquor stores. Then you will see things like, you know, different diverse options for healthy food, stuff like that. So again, inequality is assumed, but the two types of real estate development, one, um, the gentrification that brings displacement, you know, suddenly you're seeing, you know, cute cafes and doggy daycares where they weren't before, you know, and the other kind is what we call poverty level economic maintenance, where someone is benefiting off the poverty that lives in those communities. You know, whether it's all the healthcare facilities and the pharmacies that deal with, you know, the lifestyle issues that that do plague, you know, low income communities, diabetes, obesity, heart disease, things like that. You know, it's the very highly subsidized affordable housing 
that's and, and homeless shelters, developers that build that, they get paid pretty well to make it happen. So, but again, but the the net effect is that people in those communities feel like, you know, if they can afford to move out, they will. But somewhere in the middle of those two types of development, there's a third way, or that we consider a third way, which is a talent retention approach. And that's all about, you know, we sort of borrowed it from the business community. It's like, you know, and you know, you're a businesswoman. So it's like, you're not, you don't bring on people, you know, to train them to do a job that's going to build, you know, would build their, their profile as well. But, you know, you, you want that they have to like do a job and you're not training them to go work for somebody else. Right. We don't do that in our communities. Like we're, there's, I think, and sort of an, not even unspoken, it is quite open that the talented ones in our communities are meant to leave and go and be somebody. And we're challenging that because we've never had a shortage of, of talented people emerging from our communities. We've had a, a problem with them staying because they leave for other lifestyle infrastructure that they like. Yeah, but we can't blame them. Let's uh, let's have an honest conversation today. Yeah, majority. And I feel like this is a safe space to have it. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna make people a little uncomfortable right now. Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. And call call up if you disagree. So I think about Nipsey Hussle, mm-hmm. who tried to come back to a neighborhood and bring industry, culture, community mm-hmm. into a space that was toxic that was made toxic because there are a couple of things at the same time. I think they make a place untenable so that I kind of have to leave, you know, mm-hmm. when Michelle Obama talks in becoming of, you know, growing up on the South side of Chicago, you're talking about the South Bronx. There's a level of danger that when you're successful coming back in could put you in the crosshairs because what they don't do to the gentrifiers, they will absolutely do to us. Meaning black people inherently know we cannot harm white bodies in this country. <laughs> So white people can move in with their lattes and they can run in our neighborhoods with their baby strollers. They don't really have to fear the drive-by shootouts and all that because they know inherently if that were to happen, the whole entire, you know, uh, criminal justice arm will rain down on that community. But you could indiscriminately shoot black people. Dwayne Mm -hmm. Wade's sister going to school with her child. You know, there's not a whole, you know, if that were Susie Q, you know, Annie, you know, some white child woman with her child going to school, that neighborhood would be leveled mm-hmm. and, and changed overnight. So I, how do we have this conversation? Because the truth of the matter is you, you treat a person, a human being like a subhuman. Eventually they'll start to answer the call much the way an elephant, baby elephant who's chained as a baby believes that the chain is still there even when they're several tons later and they could easily break free they don't so we mm-hmm. get we get conditioned into a way of thinking and I, I i just remember being a young person going into certain neighborhoods and shifting my behavior mm-hmm. as a result you know i gotta be tougher i gotta be ready to fight you know and i i wish you would you know and i turn it to this person like come you know like let's go and that's not who i was but you you know right. you want to meet the heat they want to make sure you leave there the way you came in. So you're going to create this environment. Let's, can we talk about that major and how that impacts our decisions? I love having that conversation because, you know, it's real and it's deep and, you know, you're right. So people who feel socially excluded 
will do socially excluding things to others around them and to themselves, no doubt. And, you know, this is, you know, and I will never ever um, say to someone like, you know, don't leave your community, you know, because, you know, especially, you know, if there is, you know, a threat of violence and violence. And I understand the people who've decided to not even make that, um, he's just not even just trying. They're like, we're out. But the, but the bottom line is, I think in, to your point, in those, whatever communities gentrifiers are moving into, you know, what's at the core of it all is real estate, right? And yes, you know, white bodies are more, according to, you know, our history, we do know one has more value than the other, at least in the eyes of some, right? But when we leave our communities, what we are exact, essentially saying, someone else is going to come here and do something with it. Mm-hmm. And they do. And they do. So, and, so, where, so where's the happy? I still don't see a solution here because I'm well, not. I don't think, listen, I don't think that um, talent retention is going to solve gentrification. It's not going to solve violence, all of it. But what I do believe is that we can't really reclaim our communities without talent retention, without people actually deciding that it's going to be, it's going to remain their community, period. So I I have, um, I've been thinking a lot uh, about ways in which we can be intentional about the things we do, right? So politically right now, there's a lot of talk about, you know, the, the um, gerrymandering and the voter suppression. And I'm like, let's do a great migration. Let's move to places where a million of us, say if we move to South Dakota, we could <laughs> overtake a political system. I know, you like South Dakota. But if I'm living in cold-ass Chicago and a million of us collectively decide to move into a place that we suss out, the way mm-hmm. people immigrated into this country and came into, we got Chinatowns and places we have. No, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm talking right now. Um, but I know you're talking about white people. Um, <laughs> Cause I was like, they had a, they had a whole host of entitlement programs before they. Right, before they right, right. But oh. I mean, we could put pressure on the government to do, listen, there are places that are blighted. And so what, why don't you have incentives the way they did in Tulsa? Actually in Oklahoma, they had incentives. They gave the best, the worst land to the black people. And guess what? Oil was found on those horrible plots that they gave to the black people for, for pennies. Oh, we discovered oil. And that's how Tulsa Greenwood became very wealthy. But I'm just saying like, we should be intentional. So say there's a family, 10 cousins, and they come together in the South Bronx. And they decide yeah. we're going to move. I have a cousin who owns uh, his family owns an entire block in Augusta, Georgia. And, a, wow. you know, so they, and it's beautiful when you go visit because the cousins live across the street from each other and they're raising their families there. And it's, it's a community and it's safe. You know, beautiful. if, if we could like plan to, you know, what are your thoughts on that Majora? I think, you know, look, there's, we should have plenty of tools, you know, in, in the toolbox you know, for creating the kind of economic and social um, safe havens that we all need. You know, the one that that I'm looking at right now is the fact that there are also many people within communities where they are and, you know, who don't necessarily, you know, have, you know, the access to go someplace. And so one of the things that we often see is that there are folks within communities um, like ours that have 
whose family do have assets here. But what we've seen, you know, over, you know, especially, you know, over the past, I think, 20, 30 years, you know, as reurbanization, you know, has made the kind of places where they were, where um, people of color were, you know, destined to live in because of various zoning and other types of regulations and where the, the low income housing was, those areas are becoming more attractive. And what we're seeing is that, so when they were able to buy property cheaply, now predatory speculators are coming in and seeing that you know suddenly those areas are more attractive for developers and they're at a point where they can easily buy those properties off of the people that that bought them for a song back in the day and what we're seeing because people don't necessarily know the value of the land especially in reurbanized communities they look around at what's there in front of them and go wow this sucker thinks that this land is worth something I'll sell it like he's offering me a pretty penny. I'm out. Not understanding that that piece of land is going to actually be worth a whole lot more. And I could say that in all seriousness, because that exactly is exactly what happened to my family. Mm. You know, I'm the youngest of 10. My dad bought wow. you know, our house two blocks away from the house I grew up in, which is where I'm sitting right now. And, um, you know, for $40,000, something like that, you know, in, in no, excuse me, he bought it in the 40s for $15,000 had to pay cash for it because he wanted it in a racetrack, you know, in uh, in California, he was a Pullman porter and had, because nobody was going to loan a big old black man money. So he had cash, carried it with him, bought the house for cash because he couldn't get a loan, right? My siblings, I, my siblings didn't want to keep the family home because it was just like, oh, it's in the South Bronx. Like, you know, it's cute what you do, Majora, <laughs> but it ain't worth nothing. Now that house is worth three times more than than it was sold for, which was the things we don't talk about at a you know for at holiday family reunions and Thanksgiving. But so those what, things happen. You know, if I, that was not a unique story. That happens all the time because we don't necessarily know the value of what we have, especially in reurbanized areas. And so that's why it's like we think of of uh, the using reclaiming your reclaiming your community is is basically just being like this is like our legacy to restore and repair our communities based on what's important to us. One of them is creating more ownership opportunities or retaining those ownership opportunities that are both in the business sense as well as in um, for residential um, you know, ownership opportunities. And just recognizing that the community doesn't get better you know, or the frankly gentrification doesn't just start when you start seeing cute little cafes you know, where you didn't see them before, it starts when we don't value our own communities. Mm. That's when it, that's literally when it starts. And that's what we want to challenge that the idea that, you know, we do have to always move out of our neighborhood to live in a better one. I I remember driving, um, cause I live in Jersey where the taxes mm -hmm. are ridiculous. And yeah. there was this one block in Milburn, which is near, you know, Short Hills is expensive. <laughs> And every single house at this is during the housing boom and then bust went up for sale. I remember like, and I was like, I couldn't afford it because it was, but I, so many black people were moving in. And, and as I was thinking, I was like, these white folk probably bought those houses for 200,000. They sold them for a million dollars to, you know, some black stockbroker or a lawyer who's now paying 30, $40,000 in taxes on top of that. And then the housing crisis happened. And I wonder how many black folk lost those homes. But I was angry, actually, and insulted that black people were making, again, white folk probably moving to Florida 
with the million dollars, like they, you know, like uh, the guy from um, Monopoly, you know, with the monocle, like they got away with uh, something and they did, you know. So th- tell me, tell me, um, you know, th- it's like the value, where, you know, the ice water is colder, but I don't think that. I think it's school system. I think it's safety. I think it's all of the yeah. things that you're buying. And then they move out and then they run away with your money. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday. Black neighborhoods, white folks sold their homes for three, four, five times what they bought them for. They know right. that there's value. You know, they right. sell them to us for that amount. Tell me your story, your personal story about buying the home near your where you grew up. Yeah, well, I didn't try to, I mean, I ended up squatting my first property. What? Because, it, yeah, it was during the... Uh, it was during the late 90s, you know, when houses were going for next to nothing around here. And, um, you know, the 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 woman who lived there before, you know, I, I was the, the family, my family had been like taking care of the house for a long time. It was um, the owned by a woman who passed away like 20 years before. And but when I moved back to the neighborhood to like start working in community development, um, you know, asked my dad, like, well, who owns the house? And he was just like, nobody. And so I was like, well, you know, I'm gonna be here for a while. So and I can't be living in your house for long. So I'm gonna make it my own. Hire Wait, so a- you just moved into a house that okay, go ahead. Please tell yeah, us. Nobody story. wanted it. Yeah, it was the South Bronx in the late 90s. Nobody even thought about it. And um, so we tried to connect with the 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 estate that never even bothered to execute the will. And um, literally from the time, you know, we submitted and, you know, an offer, you know, and, um, you know, and filed a claim in surrogate court to like make sure that it was all above board there, my block literally ended up on the front page of the New York Times um, as like the Bronx, South Bronx, the next new, you know, next real estate frontier. And suddenly it was like a big thing. You know, the, the, the family was like, no, we want full market value. We want way more than that. And then, but in the interim, uh, it was crazy. A predatory speculator obtained a fraudulent deed and tried to evict me. I'd been living there at that point or someone in my family had been living there for almost 20 years. And, and I was just like, no. <laughs> and I had to go to court for two years to keep my house. And I did get it eventually, but it was a super, super hard thing. But I think that's what that story shows is that, you know, first of all, they weren't expecting me to fight. Like this predatory speculator was just like, we're just going to evict these people because that's what we do. And, and I was just like, and I wasn't trying to like build anything. Like I just needed a place to live. And I went through the process because I needed to make sure that I could stay. But what is clear about that particular process is that there are folks who fully take advantage, you know, of the fact that there hasn't been like a dedicated push to support people in those communities to understand the value of their real estate. Mm. And that's why we sell early and cheap in many cases, cheaper from what the house is actually worth, because we're led to believe there's no value in our communities. And that in and of itself, like, I mean, and you take systemic racism off the table, you take lack of access of capital off the table. What you often find are that people in our own communities don't see any reason why, if given an opportunity, why they should stay. And we had to give them some. And that's the the talent retention strategy, building the, the same exact kind of things that make people want to leave the community 
so they can experience in their own community so that they can then keep their example, you know, their, um, frankly, their tax base, you know, their economic dollars circulating, circulating through our own community so that they leave their example in our communities that benefits us. Mm. Right, let's, take some, let's take some calls. We're talking with Majora Carter. The book is called Reclaiming Your Community. Let's go to uh, Savannah in California. You're on. Welcome to the Karen Hunter yes. Show. Yes. Karen, 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 I have sat back and listened to your show for a while, but girl, when you said you are not hearing any solution, I said, whoop, that's it. I got to call in because I am so with you. I show up to our city council meetings. I see a bunch of empty seats. And, you know, I'm, I'm telling our residents, I say, you know, gentrification is coming because mm-hmm. I'm not hearing any other plan for, so what's going to be the response? What's the reply? And there is none. And so I just keep returning to what I've always preached to the community is, regardless of who's in leadership, we need to just hold our leadership accountable. But mm-hmm. I find myself more in a position of educating our res- I mean, most people don't even know who the mayor is. They don't even right. know who the chief of police is. They don't even know how did the chief of police get appointed. Oh, but let something pop off and we've got a march. Then everybody wants to get educated all of a sudden on how mm-hmm. things work. But by that time, it's too late. Right. So <laughs> when you said that, I'm like, man, you're so right. There, What is going to be the other plan? What is the plan? Uh, Savannah, listen, spot on. Thank you for your call, Majora. Well, yeah, that's it's about recognizing that you do have tools to your own economic recovery. I'm not sure what part of LA you're from or your particular neighborhood, but I know where I was from, you know, there were plenty of really talented, amazing people. Again, people who were told that they should go and build their fortunes or whatever elsewhere. And we're just like, how about we keep the property that many of us actually had in our families? How about we work to build businesses here? And what we did as a community development strategy is literally trying to create the kind of things that we knew people were leaving our own community in order to experience. The same type of people that, you know, who's who would be welcomed into other communities because, you know, they had the opportunities to build their own business or whatever, and even just be creative in some way, shape, or form. And we're like, why can't we build it here? So frankly, the first thing we did, one of the first things we did, we, I started in like environmental um, you know, work and we transformed dumps into parks. We did green job, green job training and placement systems. And then we moved into actual commercial you know, projects because that is what people want. And, and they, we needed people from our own communities to look at our community and consider it worth investing in mm-hmm. and staying in. And if they had property, not selling it to the first predatory speculator that knocked on their door, but keeping it in their own family so that they could then, you know, create generational wealth. Love it. Uh, thank you, Savannah. Manny, we're going to stay in Cali. Manny and Cali, welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on. Good morning, everyone. And Karen, you asked what the solution is. You are part of the solution. You and that other caller and your guest. Uh, because you guys are starting the communication. I mean, it's going to be painful, you know. Change yeah. is painful, man. Yes not going to be easy. Why? Because we have so many things to do from educating our community on, on real estate and from educating our community on how to appreciate your, your, your neighborhood. In other words, yeah. you get a brand new store, Walmart, whatever you want to call it, Rite Aid. You know how many young kids in that community will 
patronize that store and then throw their trash right on the ground. You know, they don't respect their own community as as well as other neighborhoods. So there's a lot of things we got to do. Uh, it's not just one solution, you know, because mm-hmm. you pick up and move everybody to Tulsa. If you haven't fixed their mindset, you're just yeah. moving that problem to Tulsa. And pretty soon you're going to have that same problem in, in Tulsa. It's tough love, you know, but we all got that uncle or that cousin. Oh, yeah, he can't come over here. No, no, he can't come over here. Or, you know, he, he you know, we got to watch him. Yeah. Don't mean I mean, you know, but, but part of that is... Love. Manny, part of that is a tutorial. You know, I often talk, tell the story of my father going up to somebody who just moved in the neighborhood and offering to cut the grass because, you know, here we keep our grass cut. So can I cut your grass? And, you know, nobody wants to be embarrassed. No, 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 I got it. I got it. But, you know, sometimes people need to know what the rules are. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? And we, you know, in, in the South Bronx, are there rules where you live? Uh, did you come in, Majora, with rules? Did you, did you lay down some laws while you were there? Look, I mean, you know, people will do them themselves. I mean, what we did and what we do is create the kind of spaces where people feel like, like, this is something I care about. And so I'm gonna take care of it. And you, but you realize that what people often are responding to is the fact that, you know, to, to, the, to the gentleman's call um, just before, it's like people, if they don't value their community, then yeah, they will throw trash on the street. Yeah, they will not pick up after their dogs. And, but by instilling, you know, in just, I think a small group of people where it's just like, there are certain things that are not acceptable if you're feeling like you care about this place. And so like in in all of our enterprises, like it is very real. Like we will love up on everybody. Like we have like, it's, it's like the black and Latino cheers, you know, the cafe that we opened up, you know, it's like people know everybody's name. And, you know, you walk over there, the barista knows your drink, you know, they know they're everybody's a DJ there. So like, they know what your favorite song is. I mean, it's really, but it's a neighborhood place that people feel really wonderful about. And um, I think that's, you know, but it, but it's, but to your, but also to the, the gentleman's point, it takes time. You know, we have been living in places, especially in communities that we're talking about that are just like, people don't like it, you know? So they're like, nobody cares. Why should I? Well, people do care, uh, and getting reclaiming your community as a blueprint is a great start. Uh, Majora, thank you for doing the book. Thank you for being a part of the show today. Uh, reclaiming your community, you don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. Yes, we are the change we want to see. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for being here again. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.